It's the doc and the deacon, stethoscope and hope, talking everything from poop to the pope. One believing in spiritual miracles, the other believes in movement bowels that are irritable. Two dads, more like two brothers, and they breaking bread like the Last Supper. This show won't get negative feedback, that be like the deacon prescribing a Z-Pack. So don't get it twisted like a Philly pretzel, Foles already told y'all that Philly special. Take notes from the knowledge they're teaching, pay attention, it's the doc and the deacon speaking. Welcome to Doc and Deacon, a podcast about two dads, one of us believing in the power of science, one of us believing in the power of Jesus, but both of us believing in the power of an ice-cold beer. You know, Doc, we've been doing this for a long time now. What are we, 75 episodes in? Uh, more than 75. Oh, yeah. I wonder if by now you know my favorite Jesus. Hmm. The repentant Jesus? The Jesus that saved you from all the naughty things you were doing before you found God? Yeah, those, those are all great. But like my favorite version of Jesus. Jesus like, in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because yeah. that means he wants to save the world, but also likes to party. Yeah, he's a partier. No, sweet baby Jesus. Ooh, who Lying doesn't... in a manger, little eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. That's my favorite baby Jesus. Well, the best part is we have a guest on the show today. And this is a woman, a writer, the head of the narrative medicine program, a physician, my friend, Rachel Fleischman. Rachel! Woo! Welcome to the show, Rachel. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So my first question for you, Rachel, is going into neonatology, why did you go into that? And is it because you hate full-size babies? <laughs> I take care of lots of full-size babies, so no. Um, I went into neonatology because I found myself wanting to help parents. And when I was doing general pediatrics in my residency, I was particularly drawn to the struggles as well as the emotional um journeys of the families, as well as the intellectual care of the patients in the NICU. And I really found it rewarding. Most of the patients that I care for do well, go on and will thrive. Um, Many of them are large, not all of them are premature. Um, And so there's a lot of gratitude um, from families there. I was a big baby. Guess guess my weight. 11 pounds. 10 pounds, three ounces. Woo woo! I was a 10 pounder as well. I believe that. I don't know I if you that. want me to say on the air that being a large baby is unhealthy. No, oh. no, I'm aware. Yeah. I mean, listen, nobody that listens to our show thinks we're perfectly healthy. <laughs> you know how I met Rachel is not because I'm uh, in the intensive care unit. No, no, oh. no, no. Because we are both creative people for the Einstein Health System. And she runs a narrative medicine program. So Rachel is... What is narrative medicine? Is that, no, where, we're is that like medical stories where she's like sitting there and she's like, is it like play by play? You know how when you're watching a basketball game and there's somebody at the game and they're like, and he dribbles down the court. He passes it to Johnson. Johnson takes the shot and he scores. Oh my gosh, a little bit of hair just popped out of the vagina. I think the cervix is fully dilated. Wow, you can see an ear. That's what she does? Yes. No, it is not, narr- <laughs> it is not narration of medical care. Oh, oh my gosh, look, there's a shoulder. We're passing the shoulder. Turn, pass the shoulder. No. <laughs> okay, so t- talk to me more about it then because... My version sounds pretty fun. Your version is... <laughs> Many more people would go into narrative medicine if that was the case. Your version is funny. The, the idea behind narrative medicine is to um, provide close reading uh, of um, text or reflective writing. And the hope is that as clinicians, any kind of clinician, nurses, physicians, anyone who works in healthcare, spend time 
reflecting and looking closely at literature or their own writing that they can then translate that skill that is going on on the inside to, sure. to the way that they approach patients. To a practice, okay. To then provide a more humanistic type of healthcare. Did, did you bring any of your writing tonight? I did not. Well, you know what the best part is? We printed it out. So we're about to do ding, a reading ding, 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 from ding. Dr. Fleischman. So I'm going to go first. You ready? Okay, you go first. Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to do this. Uh, Rachel, say, say a few more words. I want to try to get your voice down. I'm going to try to read it in your voice. I don't know what my okay. voice sounds like. Okay, I know. Okay. I'm not going to do that because I want it to sound nice because this is beautiful. My job every day is to save babies at birth and after. I attend deliveries because babies are sick or could be sick, because healthy pregnancy or natural labor has gone away. The baby has stooled inside his mother. The worry is the thick Atari stool could be inhaled. I witness the measured spectacle of screams and pushes and counting and contractions. All the while, I wince at the idea of viral particles in this mother's every exhalation. I aspire to be noble, to be unafraid, to call on reason and science, and believe my mask will shield me. But I admit it is not true that I sigh to encourage my infant patient to breathe, to scream after I've sucked thick, curdled, grassy green secretions from his mouth. I stifle my sigh as it could pull deeply at the creases and corner of my mask, could open a space for the virus to seep against my skin, along my tongue, inside my lungs. I leave this now healthy baby with his nurses. I do not ask his name. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Oh, thank you. That was from early in the COVID pandemic, pre-vaccination, when we were caring for a lot of mothers who were infected actively with COVID at the times of their birth. Yeah. Um, and while the babies don't seem to acquire COVID from their mothers, um, there was a lot of angst being in the delivery room with women who were sick. Wow. Were you scared when COVID started? I was scared. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> me too. I mean, I remember we, you know, it was two years ago about... We did, uh, you know, an episode right after, right as it was coming in. We had heard about it and, you know, we, we were hesitant to use the word pandemic, right? Two years ago. Even then, we had less misinformation than some of the television shows have on it even before it came out. So I have a question. The Deacon, do you also have some? I have some. Writing? I have uh, <clears throat> some of uh, Dr. Fleiss was right. And I am going to read it in one of the voice of one of my favorite actors, Samuel L. Jackson. Women bleed. Our blood tells both a singular narrative that is factual, centered around a product, but also holds deeply personal truths. With this universal bleeding, these narratives pour out each one pregnant with emotion, with yearning, with becoming. Some of us find nostalgia in predictable demarcation of time. Others know our own blood without romance our tide felt not as beautiful consistent pattern of nature but as a rose wrote repetition of surges and cycles wow i've never heard samuel l jackson say something so beautiful without using motherfucker <laughs> well the deacon does, uh, there's, an ep- there's an episode we did on cursing, and I didn't say it then either. So my question for you is in the past 20, 30 years, what are the biggest changes for premature babies that have affected mortality, morbidity? I think um, the biggest change for neonatal care came about um, 
so there was a mentor of mine who passed away recently, Maria Delavoria Papadopoulos. She um, hired me for my first job at St. Christopher's. Um, she is um, was known as the mother of neonatology. She passed away sometime during uh, the pandemic. Time has become sort of a funny thing. Um, and when she um, was a young neonatologist, she was among the first to start placing vape babies, premature babies with lung disease from their lungs being too early on ventilators. Um, so before that, um, the most famous case in the United States being the son of John F. Kennedy, who had passed away of premature lung disease at 36 weeks, which now is an extremely rare um, event. Nearly every baby born at 36 weeks without other complications is going to um, do very well. Um, but that baby had passed away and she had been summoned but did not make it in time to care for him. Um, and I have been profoundly influenced by her and her work in my career. Um, as we have shifted in practice from her early work of placing babies on ventilators to now, we actually know that trying to avoid intubation and much like with COVID um, and adult care, keeping them, supporting their breathing in ways that are less invasive through um, devices on the nose and the face can actually help them to thrive and help the lungs to thrive a little bit more. I love so it. they find that intubation is invasive, can, can damage some things uh, as they're inserting the tube. It, the problem with baby lungs is that they're growing. So, yeah. so we need to support them while they are also growing. And when babies are breathing on a breathing machine, the lungs are being injured by that machine at the same time that they're trying to grow. Sure. And so if that's what's needed to keep the baby alive, then so be it. But if we can do that in a different way that's less injurious, then um, then that is preferred. My, yeah, uh, if, as for us, like regular doctors, yeah. the thought is that when a baby is uh, born young, it has yet to make this thing that is in the lungs called surfactant. And that maybe we need to give these babies steroids to try to help their lungs develop. And my question for Rachel is, what the heck does surfactant even mean? It feels like some oil that's in the lungs that's going to help them make work better. Is it like, you know, WD-40 for uh, the car? Like, what is this actual surfactant thing? Have like, you ever seen surfactant? I do. I give surfactant to my patients. So oh, it's a medicine wow. that is almost like a soapy consistency that we um, place into the windpipe of the babies. We place a breathing tube and squirt it down and then take that tube back out. Um, usually, and it le it sort of lubricates the lungs um, so that it is easier for them to open and close like without oil. getting yeah. stuck together. Yep. Yeah. When's what? the last time you put sir you gave a baby surfactant? Uh, it's been about a week. Okay, that's not that long. Not that long. That's awesome. Now, and our body manufactures surfactant. The the human body manufactures it. Um, and, but babies who are born very early cannot. Yeah. So the earlier the baby, they both don't have their own surfactant. And also the, the way the lung is, the architecture of the lung is not yet formed to look like adult young. So how do we get surfactant both. to give to babies? Do you, you take it from other babies, from healthy babies, from healthy bodies? It is made um, in different ways in labs, either artificially or from animals. Okay, that's awesome. You know what's, what's interesting also? is uh, there are many things around uh, birth, giving, and pregnancy that are so, I did not know that surfactant was something that could be manufactured and made. You know, in the fitness industry, breast milk is often used as a recovery drink. We use, we use breast milk as a medicine for our babies as well. So particularly for the preterm babies, but really for all babies, we treat and I counsel parents all the time that their milk is um, medicinal. Yeah. Um, it helps to grow and heal the immature gut. 
Um, there's all kinds of um, immunoprotective and other magical powers in the breast milk that are really good for um, premature patients and all babies. Do they? When, cat- when your wife was pregnant, yeah. after she had a baby, did you taste the breast milk? Well, listen, I, I was going to ask. I, so I prefer breast milk uh, from a stay-at-home mom who lives <laughs> somewhere around California, maybe San Diego. It's very, very nice and relaxing there. I like. Uh, you like, know, there's a very particular type of breast that's milk right. you want. Yeah, 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 she, yeah, yeah. she eats. Uh, only uh, organic foods, non-GMO, and so you, I think... So you joke about this, but actually we do... I'm not joking. We do give babies donated breast milk. So That's right. Donor breast milk. So it's pooled milk, just like um, when people give blood, you can women can actually donate their breast milk. They're screened, um, just like when you give blood, you have screening to make sure that you don't have certain infections. Women who donate their breast milk are similarly screened. And I would imagine go, you could ask yeah. for somebody who's vegan or somebody who's a meat eater or... Perhaps. It's not on the check marks on the back of the bag, but... Um, you can't order like QAnon breast milk? You can order breast milk by calorie. Okay, not by QAnon. <laughs> but not no. by there's QAnon. A, there's a show on, on HBO Max right now with Stanley Tucci discovers Italy and they talk about cheeses and they talk about how the cows eat and what they graze and what they eat and at what elevation... And how that influences the different cheeses. And I wonder if breast milk could be the same. So with babies, something that we check and they're very focused on is head circumference. Have you ever seen a head as large as the deacons? And why is it specific that we need to pay attention to the size of babies' heads? I have not seen a head as large as the deacons. <laughs> I knew it. Um, the size of the head is important both at birth because if it's too small, it suggests that there could have been a problem with the baby's growth or possibly something like an infection or um, a syndrome that had affected the way that the brain and skull formed when the baby was in the mom's stomach. And then as the babies grow, just like as children grow, we want to make sure that the head is growing proportionate to the rest of the body. So we don't want it to grow too fast or too slow. Stand up for a second, Deacon. Can you Do you stop? think this head matches his body? Let's see. Let's Can see. You- Let her get a good look. Take a good look. <laughs> Can you stop? If the, let me ask this question seriously. If the head is growing disproportionately to the body, what do you do? Do you feed the body to make it grow faster? Or can you stop the head from growing? We would do we would do some kind of imaging in order to figure out why it wasn't growing either fast enough or too fast, and then depending on what was wrong, we would find the right type of doctor to help us. Correct. Deal with the problem. That's a correct answer. What is the smallest baby that you've ever taken care of? I have taken care of a 342 gram infant. Mm, and I uh, apologize. Uh, I'm a doctor in America. How many pounds is that? I don't know, but I can calculate it on my calculator. So it's by 2.2. So I don't know, it's under a pound. Wow, under a pound. Everything in everything in our weights is... Um, oh, I'm just kidding. I actually know that, but I uh, I don't know the exact... That's pretty, it's pretty... Uh, times 2.2. So it's, um, it's, I don't know, it's three, 12 co- ounces. three quarters Point of a pound. 0.754 pounds. There you, wow. there you go. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Now, what is the oldest person that you've ever seen give birth to a child? I do not know if I know the answer to that. Um, okay. Mick Jagger is the answer. Good to know. Yeah. He's not giving birth. No, in the Bible, oh, yeah, yeah, giving Sarah, birth. Abraham was like 99. In fact, it says in the Bible, it says Abraham was 100 by the time his child was born. I wow. tend to pay less attention to the age of, my, of the mothers of my patients. Okay. Because you're focused on the patient. I'm focused on and the their patient age. and their care. And I'm focused on supporting the mother, but her age does not necessarily impact how... I mean, sometimes it does. Well, that, that's a great answer. I didn't know again. if it would sometimes have in, make an impact on certain things that 
may impact the baby's chances of survival, maybe some of the syndromes that might be possible based on the mother's age, you know. There are, like, prematurity is more common in very young women, so young teenagers when they're pregnant, um, 12, 13, 14 years old, are more likely to deliver premature. Um, Same with much older women. When you look at sort of the statistics, people, women with health problems are also more, serious health problems are more likely to have premature babies or um, have complications with their pregnancy. So now since you pay more attention to the age of your patient and not the mother, do you feel like, would you know if we're seeing less uh, teenage pregnancies than we have in past years or? There are actual real statistics kept by actual real and the answer is yes. People who keep track of teen pregnancy, and it has gone up and down over time, and I don't want to misquote sure. the teen pregnancy rates. Explain to me exactly what necrotizing enterocolitis is. So when I explain it to parents, I explain it as a potentially lethal bowel infection. So what can happen is the baby's um, gut is not yet supposed to be, in a premature baby, not, the gut is not yet supposed to be digesting. And so when we challenge it with food, preferably breast milk or the donor breast milk that we were talking about. Like from uh, San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. She goes to yoga. Yeah. Maybe rides the Peloton. Absolutely. So Does she have a favorite teacher? (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. Uh, Robin Arzon. All right, cool. So the donor breast milk... Uh, or the mom's breast milk is the preferred food, but even then it can stress the gut or the intestines enough that they can it can cause swelling or air to accumulate in the wall of the intestine. Mm, sounds terrible. Which can then cause an infection in the blood, um, and it can um, eventually, if left untreated, um, cause the bowel to die, and then if really left untreated, could cause the baby to die. Ooh, ooh. Let's go from that to something just as terrible. How about retinopathy of prematurity? So just like we were talking about how the lung is immature when the babies are born early, the eye, the back of the eye or the retina how is How do you also know if immature. the lung's immature? Do you talk to you like, and the lung's like, get away from me. And they're like playing tag in there, like picking at each other. Yes. Like one lung is making fart sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> or more likely the lung is making not the right sounds mm. or no sounds when we listen to the chest. Would you think I'm an immature lung? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Explain to me why too much oxygen is bad for babies. Did you know that too much oxygen is bad for babies? Oh, right. So I was going to get back she to She was the, talking about uh, ROP. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so as the back it's, of the eye is... what it has to do with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as the back of the eye is developing... It's called a leading question, the Deacon. The, I know what the, I'm doing. It's not my first test. Stop leading the witness. <laughs> I object. <laughs> Once the baby's out in the world early, the back of the eye has to develop. And if the baby is exposed to too much oxygen, it will develop not... Right. And that can, if left unknown or untreated, cause blindness. So it is possible to give so much oxygen to a baby um, that then the retina would detach um, and that that um, future adult would be blind. Mm -hmm. So they would have sight to start? And then lose their sight over time? Or? They would have the potential for sight. Yeah. And if given lots of oxygen, that potential would go away. Okay. And so we don't, we are very judicious in the amount of oxygen that we give to our patients now because we have learned from decades prior when oxygen was measured less precisely that we have to be very careful. So we're learning more through our mistakes. 
isn't that the always the way? Isn't that the way yeah. in right? life, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, I think that's hard for to as parents to teach our kids. I think a lot of times, you know, you go from babies and you want to just save them. I remember my own my oldest daughter's birth story involved, uh, you know, um, what is it, Mer- Mer- merconium? Merconium. He merconium. Just, you and, just read about merconium. She swallowed it. I thought that's what he was reading. Mm-hmm. She uh, and, and aspirated some, mm-hmm. and uh, her lungs wouldn't open yep. the right way, and uh, she ended up with pneumonia. Yep. And she was in there for seven or eight days, and it was a really challenging seven or eight days. I am yeah. sorry to hear that. So yeah. I'm sure it was challenging. So in reading some of the essays you've written, which are pretty amazing, um, do you write any essays that don't make people cry? I do sometimes write about my children, and those essays, I think, don't make people cry. Yesterday, one of them was a <laughs> reference to Beatles, so I love it. Do, does, is your family okay with you writing about them? Because the doc and the deacon sure talk about our wives a lot. Like when my kid grows up, it's like, hey, I'm going to listen back to some of the things my dad said. I mean, we did an episode on birds and the bees about giving my oldest daughter the talk. Oh, we didn't. Oh, so I try to be um, mindful of my children's privacy. And so... Boo! Yeah. Yeah. Um, that said, I did once write an entire essay uh, about my younger son's constipation, um, which appeared in a prominent medical journal. Uh, and Ooh, which journal? Gemma. Wow. And he may, as he gets older, not appreciate my telling of that story. Um, but I have since chosen to be more cautious. My husband is my best editor and reads and helps me with everything I write. So uh, he has the opportunity to filter, but I don't, I don't usually write about my husband. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. So something I was uh, reading about was one of your essays where a baby uh, did pass. And there was something you wrote about trying to empower the families and talk to the parents after losing a child to try to help them. And how do you learn the skills and what do you say to someone in this situation? How how do you go about trying to empower these people who are at their lowest points probably ever in their lives? I think kindness is the kindness, a willingness to listen, a willingness to be present Um, I think the prelude to compassion I just read in the New York Times, um, there was an op-ed by another physician, um, and she wrote, the prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. So the willingness to sit with people, and I'm sure you know this from your deacon-ing, if you're willing to sit with people at a time of suffering, it goes very far. And so um, silence, um, a gracious presence, Um, not making people feel uncomfortable about um, dramatic and unscripted expressions of emotion um, are some of the um, active skills I use. That's a great way to put that. A a dramatic expression of emotion. I think, you know, as parents, we always want our kids to feel the freedom to express while understanding how to, um, to do that in a way that's healthy. You know, as a as a deacon, I've, I've experienced <clears throat> loss with lots of people. You know, we have and and have seen children stillborn, or or you know, people lose um, you know children through at different times throughout the pregnancy, and at different stages, you see how that affects people differently. Um, and you know, there are times when there's just nothing you can do, right? Nothing you can say, nothing you can. Uh, 
hear, nothing you can be any more than like you said, just being a presence and being willing to make them feel okay. Well, and accepting as a physician that you can't fix it. Can't fix it. Is um, something that I had, uh, I, I have three mentors in mind. They're like sitting on my shoulders right now who trained me in this regard, but you can't fix everything for everyone and you can't alleviate the burden of suffering and child loss. Mm but you can be there when it is happening um, and someone has to be there. Um, and so I am always honored when I can. Um, that doesn't mean that I you know, run into the hospital every day hoping that I can witness bad things, um, but I have learned that when those things happen um, to gravitate into the vacuum of need so that, um, so that it is filled. Yeah, yeah I, I told my medical student today, she was asking me questions about this diagnosis and this person, and I said, well, in a test question, in the end, you do something for all of these people. In the real world, you talk about the condition, you talk about the prognosis, and you follow up with people, and you make sure that they know you're there for you along the way. Do you think that how has being a mother of two children made you a better neonatologist? And in what ways has it you know, made the job even harder. Um, I think that parenting and raising my own children has given me a strong sense of humility. Like your children are going to go out into the world and. But you're published in JAMA. How can you be? How can do. you have humility? Um, well, that is a. Dis- you're the head of the narrative medicine program. Those are discrete tasks. Raising humans is a totally different level of magic. You've now been on Doc and the Deacon. Absolutely the highlight of my career. (laughs) Um, And so I think being able to sit down with other parents, some of whom are parenting for the first time in my NICU, as you, Deacon, describe for your own child, and say to them, look, like, you know, I wish that my kid would do X, but this morning he went to school with shorts on and it is 23 degrees out in February because he did not want to wear pants or a coat because why would you wear a coat? And so you just let them be and they will eventually decide to start wearing pants a year later. Um, And so I think, but I think um, if you have not parented, then you have not necessarily experienced the loss of control that you have. Um, And in terms of harder, you had asked, I think the hardest thing about my job is that I work weird hours. I work a lot of nights and weekends. And so I miss my children and my husband when I am at work at weird times um, and sometimes I feel like the world is happening and I am at the hospital. Mm. Um, and that is probably the most challenging part of my job. You talk about that loss of control. You know, there's a story in the Bible. You know, Abraham waited uh, a very long time to have a child. In fact, he waited so long that he actually disobeyed God, had sex with another woman um, who, who had a child. And then um, his wife, Sarah, became pregnant. And they don't tell us exactly how old she is, but we believe she's in her 80s. And she, <laughs> she gives birth to Isaac. And, and then God asks Abraham if he really trusts him. And then he tells him, says, take Isaac up to this mountain and kill him. On Highway 61. That's right. And he takes him up to the mountain. He is going to sacrifice his only son, who he's waited all these years to have and in completely out of control and trust God. And then, you know, as he's about to do it, God sees his, his commitment and says, you know, 
there's a lamb that you're going to find. Go get that lamb and sacrifice that lamb. And, you know, I wonder uh, when it comes to children, when it comes to the early times, how many of the rituals, right? Because we, in some religions, we baptize children, right? When they're young, some religions, the right religions, we say, well, we're going to wait until the child makes a choice and they choose to follow Jesus. Um, I, I was just kidding by calling that the right religion. Nobody got that. Nobody left. Um, <laughs> and then, and then there's other religions where you cut off the baby's penis. We don't cut off the, so I'm Jewish. We don't cut off the penis. The penis is still there oh. in the bris, the ceremonial bris. Um, the foreskin is removed. But you don't have a doctor do it. You have someone else trained to come in to do so it. So I had a doctor do of it. Of course you, you did. Dr. Fleischman, of course. Is it a doc- now listen, so because I remember there was a, there's a Seinfeld episode where there's a bris and, and Elaine the has baby. to find the moil. Yeah. So when my, both of my sons were born, so I was living in Seattle at the time. I was, um, I did my residency and fellowship out uh, in the Northwest. And there was a, a lovely pediatrician who had a side gig that eventually became his actual gig as a, as a moil. Yep. Um, and so he. Dr. Greenberg. Um, I do not remember his name, but I could tell you what he looks like. I remember him in my home twice. And uh, so he. um was a physician who was, you know, religiously authorized to perform ritual for my boys. Wow. That's awesome. And what is entailed? Because I, I don't know. Like, what is the purpose? Do you, like, serve drinks? Is it like a party? So the like, math- do, you, do, do people get an Evite? So, so we did use an Evite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the best part is when you make a joke the, and it's what's real. What's the picture on the thing? Is it like... I mean, the ma- I don't is remember. Is it a mushroom? Ooh, ooh, is it the foreskin? <laughs> Uh, before and after, <laughs> I think it's pro- it was probably some blue baby thing. Yeah, and you you do this. It's always early in the morning, or every bris I've ever been out is early in the morning because it's on. It has to be seven days after the baby's born. The very religious Jewish um, people will um, not name the baby until that seventh day. And why is that? But there's one of like ten names you guys use. Totally That's false. a joke. That's a joke. Um, the reason to wait is that in olden times, if babies were going to not live, they would probably have passed away by seven days. And so by waiting seven days, the belief is that the angel of death was will have skipped over the baby and yeah. then you can name it. So if the baby didn't have a name, the angel of death was less likely to find him. Okay. So we're talking about penises, it's boys. Yeah. Um, and so you would wait uh, the full seven days and then the moil would come to your home. There would be a prayer service, um, a brief, the regular morning prayer service. And then you would have the ceremony on the dining room table. You move the ceremony away and then you bust Bring out the, the bagels. Yeah. The bagels on the same table. The bagels with locks. With locks. Yes. Except that we... Oh, in the Northwest, I bet there's some good locks. Well, what I was going to say is, so when my, when my oldest son was born, my mother, who's from Philadelphia, and my mother-in-law from Long Island, good Jewish women that they are, I put them in charge of the food. I was was like I don't care just have the food sir fix it figure it out but the the northwest is not the same as New York and Philly in the land of the Jewish bagel so while there is great locks there are not the great bagels so we had I'm a bad Jew but we had pastries at my kids wow. they wow. were delicious not traditional okay interesting well I love it there are some famous people 
that were uh, premature babies. Are you ready to hear the famous people that were premature? And then I want to hear your favorites. Rod Carew. Is Rod Carew? Oh, I don't know. No, no. Oh, never. I'm thinking that Adam Sandler song. <laughs> never <laughs> no, mind. No, no, no. <laughs> Go ahead. No, we're not doing the Adam Sandler Jewish song. Yeah. No. We're doing premature. I'm so confused. We've, oh, moved, we're talking to, about premature. we've moved away from the Jews. Although we're no longer there's... talking about the Old Testament. Okay, fine. I'll start with a Jewish person. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Albert Einstein. And we work at Einstein. Yes, yes. Uh, next, Charles Darwin. Okay. He's on my side, the doc, not the deacon side. Well, I mean, that's not true. He was given birth. He was created by God. He's on my side, too. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll share him. Winston Churchill. Okay. And uh, Stevie Wonder. You can't handle the truth. Is that Winston Churchill? And Stevie Wonder uh, lost his vision from retinopathy of oh, prematurity. He's written a few famous songs. I feel like it's, it's interesting because I feel like that leads me to talk about like when it comes to babies, pregnancy, you know, you talked about ritual. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of superstition that goes along with like, do you see that in your walks with people? Totally. I think there's women particularly who give birth early. They haven't had the superstition of the baby shower or the not baby shower. So their babies will be in the NICU and they'll leave to go to their baby showers and then come back. Oh. Um, because they don't have the stuff. They need yeah. They need the shower. Sure. But there's a lot now, of superstition about sprinkle. when you have the shower. Right? Yep. The sprinkle for the second baby. That's for the second baby. Okay. And then what are your thoughts on birth plans? Do we just throw them out the window or are you pro-birth plan? I am pro-healthy delivery. I know that answer. All right. Yes. I know a lot of women. So we always use the method where we would uh, dangle a necklace she's, over she's the She's so belly. good at like answering your question in a nice way. And we're so cover. naughty at answering. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. She should run against Dr. Oz. Yeah. We need somebody to beat <laughs> that guy. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm pro-doctor. But, but uh, do you think Ray Singer doctor- would be on her side? <laughs> Oh, Dr. Singer versus Dr. Oz. That would be a great... Uh, no, we want him to back Dr. Fleischman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, I, no offense. Um, Ray would want to be the... Uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he would, would want you to be the, your vice. Yeah, he, he yeah, would no let offense. you be the lieutenant. Yes, yes. Uh, no, that's not going to happen that way. I am not running for Congress. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I would vote for you, I think. I think I would vote for you. Um, well, I, I... Listen, without your yeast... There would be a lot of things that wouldn't happen. Yeast? <laughs> because you're Jewish. Fleischmann's. No, Fleischmann's yeast. Oh, Fleischmann's what are you talking yeast. about? Yeah. <laughs> that had nothing to do with her being Jewish. I mean, okay. Anyway, I mean, I don't mind unleavened bread. That is matzah. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different holiday. Exactly. The bris, not a holiday, but also a ritual. Not a, but there's a lot of partying going on. Do you think? And a lot of drinking, and, but not beer. Yeah. No beer. It's just Manischewitz. Well, if you're going to forgo yeast, you're going to forgo leavening. So oh. for Passover, no, no beer. So do we drink Manischewitz? We drink Manischewitz. All right. I like it. Uh, Drum has a friend who's a rapper who is... A famous Jewish rapper, a Kosha Dills. A famous Dils. Jewish rapper called, named Kosha Dills. I, don't know, I have no words. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think what we've learned is that... Doctors are talented in other ways, and some doctors are talented in the ability to really describe in a beautiful way things that happen in the world. And I think what we've learned also is that thankfully there are people here that are trained to take care of these babies who are born at such a young age. And obviously it makes things more difficult and gives us issues with the lungs and with the bowels and with the eyes 
But it doesn't mean that some of these young people may not be amazing in the world. And we may end up getting, uh, you know, a Stevie Wonder. Yeah. And that baby may not be able to see, but may be able to sing and may be creative. I would like to invite Stevie Wonder into our narrative medicine program because he is creative like we are. Yeah, that's right. And you know what? And we are going to have women having children, which is the most natural, beautiful thing in the world. And there's nothing better than I think holding Dr. a Fleischman, baby. I think Dr. Fleischman brought a Stevie Wonder song she wants to sing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I think it's because she's a little superstitious. All right. All right. Very superstitious. Nothing more to say. Very superstitious. The devil's on his way. When you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. I want to thank Dr. Fleischman for coming in on the show. Oh, yeah, listen. And you know what I want to say? Yeah, do it. Isn't she lovely? Mm. Isn't, Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Mm. Two things you can always count on. The doc is in. And the deacon speaks. Thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman, head of narrative medicine at Einstein Medicine. Yeah, she's the Einstein downtown. Tell yeah. us uh, your website and tell us your Twitter handle. I am R.A. Fleischman, not spelled like the yeast, which is why you threw me. Um, <laughs> and my website is rachelfleischman.com. RachelFleischman.com. What, what things can we find on your website? You can find links to my writing um, and press appearances, and you will soon find a link to this podcast. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, we learned so much uh, about babies, about the process, about um, and, and really enjoyed your writing. Um, you know, I will never hear my own words read as Samuel L. Jackson ever again. <laughs> I can guarantee that was quite the honor. You know, I think for, for many of us, we think about um, childbirth as this beautiful thing and it is so beautiful but with it there are so many complications and some of that uh, you spell out so well and I think for uh, for women and babies out there uh, it's great and we are so thankful to have someone like you uh, to be present and take care of them so thank you so much for joining us today thanks to our producer uh, Tucker Butler Tucker Butler thank you just had a birthday holla Thanks to our rapper, franchise, musical guest, the franchise, and thank you to uh, to Stevie Wonder, yeah, uh, uh, R O P Survivor. <laughs> I guess so. Yes, is, what you, you know uh, his music is fantastic, and he's wonderful. I just called to, to say, say I love, love you. you to our wives. Thank you, our lovely lives. Peace. Peace. Excellent brain trust to market and brand this That's set in stone like the Ten Commandments This show gon' be around for infinite years I think we can all agree on ice cold beers 100% authentic, you can't fake it Often imitated, but never duplicated So knowledgeable, take a lot of facts in Now I'm coming to close it like a Roldis Chapman